You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. I'm so glad you are here this morning. We all are. If it's your first time to Grace, welcome. We extend a special welcome to you. But that's true for anyone who is here today. Um, We'll be talking about our connections and their interconnections with one another during the service. Just to remind you, on the table, just as you go out of the sanctuary on the left, by the offering basket uh, or offering box, there's a basket where you can take these forms, fill them out, fold them, and put them in. Ricky will be leading this team, so pray for the Lord to establish just the ones he wants to be on that team. A few things, just a couple of really quick things. Tonight at 6.30, you've already been told, but let me say it again. Grace Matters, FAM ministry, fostering and adoptions ministry. You just don't want to miss it. I know you're like, ah, football's on, there's this, there's all kinds of things. Don't miss this. Be here tonight. There'll be so much information and opportunities for you to serve in ways that you didn't think were uh, available, but you'll find ways that you can serve. And then also, the day of prayer and fasting this week from Tuesday after dinner until we meet Wednesday. Um, And then February 5, which is next Sunday, February 5th, next Sunday morning, after the second service, we're going to have Discovery Lunch. If you're new to Grace, just want to know more about Grace, we're going to have elders and staff Uh, It'll be really informal. We're not going to go around. Everybody introduce yourself, maybe at your table, but just find out who you are, but surely not in the room. Come and get to know a little bit more about Grace, and then if you really want to know more, February 18 and 19, Grace Connection, uh, where we, it's our new members class. You don't, we're not assuming that you're going to become a member uh, just because you're in that class, but if you want to be a member, that class is mandatory. But you'll enjoy it. There, we just talk about so many important things in that class about what we believe and how God has structured our church to be and how we can serve one another while we're in church. So sign up for both next week's um, uh, Discovery Lunch and then also for Grace Connection. If you're here next Sunday and you haven't signed up, I'm still going to say join us for Discovery Lunch. But we, it helps us to know How many plan to be here? And as I think I've already mentioned in weeks gone by, it's steak and lobster next Sunday, I think is, I think that's what's on the menu. Well, if you're here for the first time on a Sunday morning and you haven't checked out our current sermon series on the website, then it will be helpful to know that we are in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And last week, we began somewhere between a five and six, I'm hoping it's going to be five, could be six-week series on spiritual gifts as found in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Perhaps the greatest challenge when you're preaching about spiritual gifts is that nobody seems to have an opinion on them. It's actually, as you know, the exact opposite. So it's important that we approach this subject with humility. But everything in us wants to run to the front and grab the microphone and say, let me tell you what I know about spiritual gifts. 
And you may be coming with experiences, you may be coming with knowledge, or a combination of the two. But if we are going to have anything useful to say, and that includes moi, we're going to need to come with humility and with love for everyone in the house, not just our tribe. It was in Christ's humility, after all, that Satan, the pride of Satan, was destroyed. Our text today is a lengthy one, but there is much of interest, I think, that you'll find in this text. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 31. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12. For just as the body is one and many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. <laughs> and if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I guess I just don't count. I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, which, just think about it. He's, he, he's painting like a Gary Larson cartoon, a far side cartoon. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of, in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member or part of the body, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. <clears throat> and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Not a sermon on dress, but think about it. Our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are very much kind of like sort of the body. Of, no, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God <clears throat> has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings or healing, tongues, admin, no, let me go back. 
gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? The answer, of course, is no. Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But I earnestly, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way, which will be 1 Corinthians 13. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you. Be seated. Today's text is neatly divided, which every preacher appreciates, into three sections, beginning with the doctrine designed to bring unity often brings division. A spirit of gratitude, though, will bring us together. What do you think it means to be baptized by the Spirit or with the Spirit or in the Spirit? Is water baptism a component of the baptism of the Spirit? Have all Christians been baptized in the Spirit? Or is it reserved for a, a few of the more mature, sanctified, holy Christians who have reached a higher level in their relationship with the Lord? Is the baptism of the Spirit in Acts 2 the same as the baptism of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12? There are several more questions I could keep rattling off, but it gives you a hint of the potential different interpretations that people have for this text. First, always do this. First, consider the context of Paul's theological statement or summary in verses 12 through 13. In addition to all the other conflicts that we have encountered in Paul's letter, people were divided over, it seems all, like almost everything. They were Divided also in the church over the gifts of tongues or the gift of, gifts of the spirit and particularly the gift of tongues. The primary problem was that those who spoke with tongues were looking down on those who were not blessed with that particular spiritual gift. Now it can be in, in other directions. You could have people who have a great deal of knowledge looking down on those who don't have so much knowledge. But in this church, it was the, the problem was that people who spoke in tongues were looking down on others who didn't have that gift. In Acts 1, so to go back and start thinking about what happened in Acts and comparing it with chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. In Acts 1, Jesus commanded the disciples to go back to Jerusalem, wait there for the coming of the Spirit. And he said, not many days hence you will be baptized in the spirit. Acts 2 gives the, the account of the day of Pentecost when the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to all of Jesus' followers who were sharing the gospel. So is that what Paul meant in those verses? Now, now remember, there were, I think it was 120 in, in waiting for the spirit, and they were all together in the temple or close by, and the spirit came on them, and they all spoke with tongues. People said, are they drunk? What's going on? And Peter said, oh, no. This has been prophesied in Joel. And then he, sh he shared the gospel. He gave the gospel. 3,000 men, most likely, they counted men, 
not women and children, 3,000, at least 3,000 men, and then how many more women and children were converted? I don't, there's no indication that they spoke with tongues. So Jesus' followers spoke with tongues on that day. One of the signs was speaking in tongues, but there were other signs as well. They spoke the gospel in other languages. It is absolutely clear that the tongues in Acts 2 were languages that were being spoken. They were speaking the gospel. You'll hear this again today. But remember, these gifts were given in service to the gospel and in service to brothers and sisters in Christ. So, because the Holy Spirit came on those who believed, a lot of people think that anytime a person is saved, the sign of their salvation is speaking in tongues. But why only the gift of tongues, not the sound of rushing wind and divided tongues of fire as occurred in Acts 2? So fast forward from Acts 2 to Acts 10, where Peter uh, is on the roof in um, Caesarea, and I think it's Caesarea, he co- and, and the Spirit comes to him and says, go to the house of Cornelius and preach the gospel, and Peter's like, no, I don't go to Gentiles' homes, and the Lord says, no, you need to go. That's a short version, a very short version. So Peter goes up, and he preaches the gospel to Cornelius. He said, yeah, I've been expecting you. In fact, the Lord told me to send for you, and I did, and thank you for coming. Peter tells the gospel, and as he's preaching the gospel, they begin speaking with tongues. Now, when he goes back to Jerusalem, because the council of Jerusalem are like, Peter, what are you doing in the house of a Gentile sharing this message? You got to come through Israel, right? Peter's like, apparently not. They said, come on down. You need to give a report of yourself. And he gave the report and he said, and the spirit came upon them in the same way that he came upon us at the beginning. Now, there was at least 10 years between Acts 2 and Acts 10. Peter didn't say, you know how it is every time our brothers and sisters believe and the Spirit comes on them. So something specific, something special is going on every time you see tongues mentioned in in the book of Acts. Chapters 2, 10, and 19, and the other time that it's implied in Acts chapter 8. There is a significant redemption event in every one of these cases in the book of Acts. The gospel comes to the Jews in chapter 2, to the Samaritans in chapter 8, to the Gentiles in chapter 10, and to the disciples of John the Baptist in Acts 19. Now, Acts 8 is the tricky one. By the way, if you're just... Totally lost, I'm so sorry. This will be over in just a few minutes, you know. The Novocaine is going in, the tooth will be out, and and if it doesn't make sense today, maybe it will make sense one day. But in Acts chapter 10, I mean chapter 8, you've got a situation that's different than, than the others. Philip, the deacon Philip, is up in Samaria preaching the gospel. 
And a lot of people believe. And Philip says, well, you need to get baptized. And so they go to the water the way we think. He dunked them. If he sprinkled them, it doesn't matter. But they dunked in those days. Um, so, so Philip then, apparently the word gets back to Jerusalem and the disciples or the apostles say, now look, we got to figure this. We got to see what's going on up there. And Peter and John go up. They lay hands on the believers and the spirit of God comes upon them. Now, we must assume that they spoke in tongues. It does not say that, but it's safe to infer that something happened. Simon the magician is like, let me buy this gift because something was going on after Peter and John laid hands on him. So was this a second blessing? A lot of people look at this and look at other places like when Jesus put mud on the eyes and he, 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 the man saw people like trees walking and then later he fully received his sight. After that, he fully received his sight. Some people think, well, that indicates a second blessing. But that's not what was going on in Acts chapter 8. It was a fulfillment of Matthew 16 when Jesus said to Peter, I give you, because you have professed me as Christ, and the Lord has given you this profession, I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Every time, think about it, every time the gospel went to a new group, Peter was involved. He preached at Pentecost. He affirmed the salvation of the Samaritans, half Jews, half Gentiles, despised by the Jews. J J Samaritans despised Jews. It was a mutual uh, despising of, of the other group. So Jews, Samaritans, and then in Acts 10, Gentiles. Peter goes into the house. He shares the gospel with, and everybody in the house receives Christ, and the Spirit comes upon them. So, Peter was the instrument that God used to take the key of the gospel and turn it in the hearts of the people who heard and believed. And God affirmed their relationship with Christ by the gift of tongues. And we're assuming that's true in chapter 8. In Acts 19, Paul is in Ephesus, and this is many years later still. And he encounters disciples of John the Baptist who had been in Jerusalem but probably got out of town before Pentecost. And he said, have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? They said, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. And he shared the gospel and tongues came on him. Now look, just the best thing that I can assume from that is God was affirming that there is no way other than Jesus to be saved. No matter how religious you are, no matter how good you are, if you don't know Jesus, you're not related to God and you don't have the Holy Spirit. So those four times in the book of Acts, the tongues in Acts were unlike the tongues being practiced in Corinth and likely in other churches. Was it languages? Probably so. But let's, let's deal with that when we get to chapter 14. And notice I say probably so. I'm not going to rule out the possibility, but it, it, my, I'm leaning towards thinking the tongues in, in Corinth were, were languages, known languages, just like they were in Acts. 
it, it's um, so in the point in First Corinthians twelve thirteen is that tongues were not needed to affirm that people had believed the gospel, they had been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Remember at the end of this text, Paul will ask, do all speak with tongues? And the answer, of course, is no. He's asking a rhetorical question. And the assumed answer is no. <clears throat> but, he says, all, all believers have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's too narrow a scope to say that the heart of the problem <clears throat> at Corinth was a misunderstanding and a misapplication of the doctrine of the baptism of the Spirit. At the core of all these issues was division, which was caused by elitism, which existed because of a failure to understand the meaning of Jesus' cross. So it's like a foundation. Well, nope, there's a deeper, nope, there's foundation even, even greater. It's a misunderstanding of what it means that Jesus, God, Son of God, God incarnate, came to earth, lived a perfect life, and died to save us from our sins because we are incapable of being good enough to be acceptable in God's sight. When we understand that all are equal at the foot of the cross, it changes the way we view others. We are all sinners in need of a Savior to redeem and rescue us. We must all repent of our sins and trust that Jesus' death on the cross was done, was, was, was accomplished to pay for our sins, to suffer in our place for our sins. And when we call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved and baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Such knowledge should unite us, not divide us. We get into trouble when we fail to understand God's design for the church, which is the focus of the second point. Comparisons within the body lead to pride on all sides. A spirit of humility will allow us to see ourselves as the body of Christ. Because we are in this study, you might be tempted to think that when churches disagree about the gift of tongues and prophecy and healing and miracles, all those gifts, the real problem is a lack of understanding by those who disagree with me. And the way to fix this problem is just help them understand what these chapters really mean, and then we can move on, right? All right, good. I'm glad we settled that. I can tell you from personal experience that understanding these three chapters is a far greater challenge than you might think. It's why we need humility in our interactions with one another. The Corinthians had a bad habit of comparing themselves with others in the body. This tendency was to persist in the Corinth, in Corinth church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Paul needed to remind his friends not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another, 
and compare themselves with one another. They are without understanding. If you're not familiar with that verse, it's an important verse. Now, there's a bigger context. Gospel, who has authority? As so many things are in Scripture, who has authority? That's the big question. <clears throat> but here, <clears throat> Paul's saying, look, when you get into the comparison game, that's trouble. Those in Corinth with the more exciting spiritual gifts were looking down their noses on those who had more humble gifts. Paul rebuked their arrogance by saying, really? You think that you can do without the others in the body? Is the eye really going to say to the hand, I don't need you. I can see all I need to see here. Oh, I see I need to turn something. No, can't do it. No hand. Well, will the eye really say to the hand, I have no need of you? And yet, that was the very impression that those with the more ecstatic gifts were giving off to those with the less sensational gifts. Trouble ex existed, though, all across the spectrum. An inferiority complex can be just as damaging to unity as an elitist mentality, although it's going to manifest itself in more subtle ways. Look, when someone is arrogant or a bully, most everyone sooner or later will see it and they'll all be affected. When we are insecure about our position in the family, we might be more passive-aggressive in the ways that we cause harm to unity. You might be saying under your breath, well, if it isn't Mr. Gift to the Universe coming over here, hey, good to see you, and smiling, and it's all, everything's good, and oh, yes, that's great, I agree with you. One of the ways that we fail to comprehend the different gifts in the body and to, to, to comprehend the, the benefit of all the gifts of the body is to lament that there aren't more people with my gift or with my concerns. Well, if everyone would just give like they ought to give, then we'd have more than enough. If everyone would just pray, then maybe God would pay attention to our little flock. If everyone would just serve, we could get something done around here. <clears throat> but think of the ways <clears throat> that God has blessed us. We have greeters and sound techs and children's ministry check-in hosts and light bulb changers who can also fix the wiring when, when there's a problem. And home group host homes and those who continually pray for the church and, and givers. And I could go on and on. It's not simply that you have a place here at Grace. We need you. And those with the more public giftings ought to say thank you a whole lot more to those who are in service areas of ministry. I want to say just a word about ministry here. And I contemplated several times just taking this paragraph out. That used to be really hard for me when I was a young preacher, but it ain't hard at all. Now I'm looking for paragraphs I can take out. But this is important. And it, and it feels kind of like, like a, a side path. Uh, it was the intention of the church founders, rightly, to guard against becoming a program-driven church where everyone 
is doing ministry all the time. Indeed, when we are overly active, we forget that we come to church to receive. We receive word and sacrament on Sunday. We receive and pass the peace of Christ to one another. We receive the grace of God just like we receive the gospel. It's not something we can do. All we can do is say, thank you, Lord. I believe I receive this free gift. Sunday is our Sabbath. And we must not lose sight of the gospel in our service to one another. But it is a privilege to build one another up through the spiritual gifts that God has given us according to design. So having warned against overcommitment, let me also say that we have some really specific needs right now. We need children's ministry workers. Probably Keisha's got the toughest job of all of us. And this, and a lot of staff members are pushing just as hard. We're pushing as hard as we can right now. Ricky has need for help, but imagine every week having to see who can fill in for someone who's not able to be there on Sunday morning. If, if the Lord has given you gifts in children's ministry or it, working with children, please consider this. And hey, it might be that you have other gifts that are, that are needed and so you can't do it. And maybe it's just a season, but we need children's ministry workers. We need some live stream techs. These guys are back here every single week. Same with the sound. We need people in those areas. There are other areas as well. So here's the question. Are you gifted in these areas? We already have a high percentage of people serving, but we need everybody. That's the way God designed us to be. Stabilize, put your arm in a sling all day, a really tight sling, and do without it and just see how badly we need everyone in our church. Although not everyone has the gift of evangelism, all believers are called to share the gospel when, when the Lord gives opportunity. Although not all are blessed with the gift of wrestling in prayer, all are called to pray. Some, as we talked about last week, called to believe and, and, and just exercise the gift of faith <clears throat> during a difficult time. We, we could all give more attention to our building into our grounds. Look, if there's trash on the ground, pick it up. You go outside, get in your car, and there's trash between you and the road. Step out just a minute and come back, wash your hands, all of that. If a sink needs wiping down, use a paper towel and do it. But the biggest need is that we serve one another with the gifts according to the gifts that God has given us. So if you see someone alone, sitting alone, or standing in the lobby looking bewildered, we've got a greeting team, but we need more people on that. And really, we should all be greeters. Uh, go up and offer help. If you're an introvert and you're like, oh, no, I'm not going to do that, then okay, pray for a person who looks like they need prayer. Just pray. And who knows? It may be the very thing that God uses to make a huge impact in his or her life. Rather than comparing yourselves with others, 
Give thanks for others' gifts and humbly serve one another. Last, self-absorbed expectations lead to disappointment and disunity. A spirit of trust will produce spiritual fruit. And there's so much more in that statement than I'm going to be able to say. But just think about that this week. What is it that you are unable to do that you would like to do? Sing? Some of you are like, no, I can't carry a tune, but I sure wish I could. Teach? No, I don't want to do that. Witness? Oh, I know I should do better at this. What if God made you exactly like he meant for you to be? Isn't that a novel thought? Trusting God at this level, though, is difficult because of our deep insecurities. It's my suspicion, and I could be wrong about this. Maybe it's, you know, I I heard someone say years ago, our suspicion of others is most likely the result of an intimate knowledge of ourselves. You know, I know what you're thinking. Well, how do you know what somebody's thinking? Because that's what I'd be thinking in that situation. I, I... I suspect that we're all desperately insecure because of the fall. But we deal with our insecurities differently. And so it appears that most others are together while we are not. And if you think, no, I'm exactly who I want to be, then make certain that pride is not a mask for a deep need somehow to be good enough and and not to be found out. By others. When we trust God to know what He is doing, and we put ourselves in His hands to do with us and through us as He will, spiritual freedom begins to blossom and grow in us and all around us. When we trust as a church family, fruit increases both within the church and others come to Christ. Because of our unity, Scripture, the New Testament is full of it. In verses 27 to 31, Paul lists some of the spiritual gifts for a second time. There was a spirit of competition at Corinth, and those who had been given the spiritual gift of tongues were certain that they had won. Just like in some churches, as I mentioned earlier, those who really good with Bible study are certain that they have won. So once again, I want to ask you to hold your thoughts about where this is all going until we come to the end of chapter 14. Before we get into the list of gifts, though, it's important to note that even though Paul had just finished saying that all gifts are equally necessary, he will now rank gifts in importance for the structure and function of the church. There's almost no way you can get around it. I, I, I wanted to think, no, but look, First, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers. He lists them, one, two, three. And this ranking is both for the universal church and the local church. Teaching gifts all. The first two, in fact, apostles and prophets, were part of a group through whom the Lord established the sacred scriptures by which the church must live. 
Paul said that God first appointed apostles, apostles, then prophets, and teachers were third. The question about whether God is still calling and appointing apostles and prophets today can be quite controversial. Let's read from Ephesians 2 and 3 for context. First in Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. So then, you were no longer, he's talking to Gentiles in Ephesus who had been converted. You were no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Is the temple of God my body or the church? Yes, we've already seen this in 1 Corinthians. So now... We're understanding the role of the apostles and prophets in that. Then Ephesians 3.5 goes on to say that the mystery of God's plan for Jews and Gentiles to be one church through Jesus was revealed by the apostles and the prophets. The early church understood the 12 apostles minus Judas Iscariot plus the Apostle Paul, to hold a special place in the establishment of the church. They were singled out by Jesus for special ministry, and they saw the resurrected Christ. Now, if you're keeping score and you're wondering about Matthias, we don't know, though we might speculate, which I will not do. So moving on. Although a few others were called apostles in the New Testament, it was likely not in this sense of those apostles being the ones to establish the church. Prophets, such as James, and yes, Jesus establishes the church, but he used them. Prophets such as James, the half-brother of Christ, and Jude, the half-brother of Christ, uh, were used to write New Testament epistles in addition to the gospel writers. Mark had a great deal of help from Peter. Luke, no doubt, had much help from Paul, who had help from Mark, who he said was... Not fit for the ministry earlier, but later he comes back and says, well, wouldn't you know it? Mark has been quite special, and he's wanting Mark to come to him at the end of his life in prison in Rome. And I think probably because he wanted to get in on the Gospels writing stuff. But he had his impact with Luke there. So you see that God used people to establish his church. So do apostles and prophets exist today? Well, not in the Ephesians 2 sort of way. But people might function like apostles in places where you have someone overseeing several churches. Let me just say this about this too. Does God give new revelation today? Some people use the word revelation to say Prophecy is revelatory. We'll talk about that when we come to it in a few weeks. But if God speaks through prophets today and apostles today like he did in the early church, then the Bible is going to be constantly changing. Tertullian was an important church figure in church history. Um, he 
was the first one to use the term Trinity to my understanding. He was the one who said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of church. He says, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? Why are you mixing up theology and philosophy? He gave us a whole lot in the first century, but at the end of his life, he was taken up with this, taken by this group called the Montanists who believed that God was revealing new truth in this day. And so the church did not consider him to be one of the great early church fathers, and in some places he was considered to be a, a heretic. So no, we, the Orthodox church does not believe God is still speaking to us through people in the way that he spoke through those initial apostles and prophets. Prophets in the first century might well have spoken directly to congregations while the church was being established. But we no longer hear, thus says the Lord, with new truth that is revealed to us by which the entire church should live. Word of knowledge, word of wisdom... Prophecy, as we'll see, as it is practiced in, 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 in 1 Corinthians 14, may have a place where we are saying, you know, just since the Lord is doing this in your life. But when we say, God has told me this about you, well, no, the kind of truth that the apostles and prophets gave were given to the whole church. Everything we read in the New Testament is given to all the church. In fact, Thus says the Lord is almost never used in the New Testament except when quoting an Old Testament prophet. So there's much debate about whether the gift of prophecy is in use in our day. You might be surprised where your favorite preacher slash scholar falls on this debate. I'm going to go into this in much more detail in a couple of weeks. But for now, hear this from John Piper. It might be of interest to you where he talks about the gift of prophecy in our day. Have humble expectations that the prophecy will not be taken as a word of Scripture, but as a spirit-prompted human word to be weighed by Scripture and by mature spiritual wisdom. So just a heads up, anybody who spoke in Corinth, everybody else was weighing out what he said. Is this true? Is this not true? For a prophecy to be accepted as valid, it should find an echo in the hearts of spiritually mature people. It should be confirmed by biblically saturated insight. And it should find a resonance in the hearts and minds of those who have the mind of Christ and are ruled by this place. Close, or ruled by his peace, I'm sorry. Close quote. Evaluation of prophecy is as necessary as evaluation of teachers, but more about that in a few weeks. After apostles and prophets in Paul's list in 1 Corinthians 14 comes teachers and then miracles and then gifts of healing, which remember are helpful in the service of the gospel and in service to the body. <clears throat> Helping is taking one of our senior saints to a hospital appointment. Our deacons are given the gift of helping, and people all through the congregation serve in ways that you'll never know about. After administration, of which we also have great need in our church, only then does Paul list tongues at the very end. This had to be intentional. 
Again, because it was the problem in Corinth. He might have had a different list or a different order for a list in other churches. When we get to chapter 14, two weeks from today, Lord willing, Paul is going to narrow down all this discussion about gifts to two. He's going to talk about prophecy and tongues. It'll be a long discussion, and I hope we'll be able to get through it in two weeks. But it takes, if it takes three, then that's okay. Well, I just want to apologize to the younger ones among us, young believers. I shouldn't apologize, but just to say, I know this has been difficult. Because we're deep in the weeds. And I seriously considered spending a whole week on the Acts, tongues in Acts. That might have been a little bit better trying to put it, but it's good to see them side by side, which we are going to do in a few weeks. So as we conclude, now next week we get, finally get to the application we've been waiting for. 1 Corinthians 13, where the, the, the break in the middle of all the discussion about gifts is love. We must love one another. Unfortunately, it's not going to be all sweet and nice because love is really difficult. 1 Corinthians 13, which I've read many times at, at weddings, beautiful, but man, when you get down into the nitty-gritty, it's tough. Well, let's read 1 Corinthians 12, 27 to 31 one more time, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come as I read. Now, you are the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, shall I join the body of Christ with a harlot when he was talking about sexual sins. Because your members and organs are the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. Difficult to process in this enlightenment era. And individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing in the service of the gospel, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? No, we're not meant to. Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a more excellent way. Father, may we remain humble through these days where we have come to a topic that has many different possibilities for interpretation, and we come from many different places and experiences and understanding. So, May we be unified as your word requires, encourages. What a beautiful gift it is to be united. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, 
go to graceccnc.org.